Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guide to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. While this year's Missouri Conference in History may be over, the Our Missouri podcast invites listeners to meet us in St. Louis for a multi-part series focusing on several projects and institutions that document the city's history and cultural identity. Our guest today is Priscilla Dowden-White. Originally from St. Louis, she earned a PhD in history from Indiana University. She is the author of Groping Toward Democracy, African-American Social Welfare Reform in St. Louis, 1910-1949, which was published by the University of Missouri Press. Presently, she serves as an Associate Professor of History at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast, Priscilla. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Now, tell us a little bit about the origins of this book project. Well, this book... um began as my dissertation topic. Well, if I'm completely honest, it, it, it began as a um, paper for one of my courses, in one of my courses uh, while I was working on the PhD at Indiana. And I ended up um, carving out a dissertation topic from that. My advisor, who was also the um, professor, the instructor for the course where I wrote the paper, had given us all an assignment for spring break to go home. Um, If you were going back to your home communities to go home and do a bit of um, historical work um, on your community there. And so that's how it started. And initially, um, I didn't think that I would find a lot on the 19th century and on uh, specifically on the topic that I was interested in at at that time, um, 18th and 19th century, uh, looking at the slave community in St. Louis. And I started out uh, with that topic because my advisor's area was 19th century uh, intellectual history. Um, And so that's why I started in the 19th century. So when I was looking for uh, a dissertation topic, I came back to St. Louis to do some research. I knew I wanted to to do my topic on uh, some aspect of the African-American community. And at that time in the 1980s, there weren't any published community studies on uh, the Black community here on the African-American community in in St. Louis. And so it um, was, a challenge to say the least 
to do that that ground research of of digging for for a topic and as i realized that i didn't have the sources the primary sources to do um a study of the slave community here i almost gave up and the archivist at uh, what was then the western historical manuscripts collection um suggested that i not give up but that i come into the 20th century and she encouraged me to look at some of the archives there and as I began to look at the archives, um, I realized that there were far more primary sources um, available to me if I were to come into the 20th century. And during that time, I also found out that there were some very important uh, archival resources at Washington University in their special collections because they um, had and have the St. Louis Urban League paper. Um, and the Western Historical Manuscript Collection um, had the League of Women Voters papers. And so those two, those two collections uh, became critically important for um, the foundation of um, what would become my dissertation topic and uh, later uh, the book, Groping Toward Democracy. Interesting. Um, you mentioned, you know, Washington University, the Western Historical Manuscript with uh, Urban League records and the, and the League of Women Voters. What were you finding in those records that were so enlightening that kind of guided, the, guided your early work with the dissertation and later the, later the book? Well, that's a that's a, a great question, um, and I, I love to to talk about this because uh, in the 1980s, when I began this research, I had a certain impression of both the Urban League and the League of Women Voters. I looked at the League of Women Voters uh, at that time as just a, a stodgy group of um, elderly white women who were still uh, having teas and wearing gloves. And I looked at the Urban League as being um, a, an overly bourgeois uh, African-American organization that was too preoccupied with having uh, galas. And so I had um, a pretty distorted image uh, view of both of those organizations. And my view definitely uh, lacked any historical context. And so I was really surprised when I found out that both of these groups, both of these organizations um, were in the forefront of the Black freedom struggle during the first half of the 20th century. 
And so as I continued to go deeper into both of those collections, there were some issues that began to emerge, um, issues that were important to the Black community here in St. Louis, issues that they were, that they felt were worth fighting for. And I began to notice that there were certain individuals um, certain leaders, certain activists, certain groups that were uh, present in the struggles that I was seeing. And so I started to see a movement that had coalesced during that, that, um, that era. And so that's how I began to um, narrow my focus down to uh, two main areas, public health care and public education. When I first started the research, when I wrote my PhD um, dissertation proposal, it was more like a career parameter than a, 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 a proposal for a, a dissertation. Um, I remember wanting to uh, look at not only healthcare and education, um, but uh, politics and leisure, um, a number of different things. And as I did the research, I began to see that issues around healthcare and education were very important to this community here in, in St. Louis. And interestingly, some of those areas that I had initially planned to explore uh, more directly um, in the dissertation uh, as it was proposed, um, those issues, many of those issues came into play even in those areas that I ended up focusing my research in healthcare and in education. So for example, uh, politics came into, into play in um, the movements that I uh, explored during that research. One thing that kind of strikes the reader as they first encounter the book um, is the term social welfare reform. It's, it's right there in kind of the, the title of the book and certainly something that you're kind of engaging with um, from the very beginning. What does that term encompass in your view? So, you know, I, I, I used the term earlier, um, Black freedom struggle, when I noticed that I was surprised to find that uh, the Urban League and the League of Women Voters played such uh, a major role in the Black freedom struggle uh, here in St. Louis over the first half of the 20th century. And the term Black freedom struggle is one that encompasses uh, not only that period, but we can go all the way back to the period of slavery and come all the way up to 
the present. And we are looking at the Black freedom struggle, whether we're talking about um, freedom uh, during slavery, during Jim Crow, um, in this current era, we can use that term, Black freedom struggle. We can't use the term uh, civil rights movement to describe that same long history and, and present. Um, we can't even use the term uh, social welfare reform movement. Both the civil rights movement and this social welfare um, reform movement that I identify, they are part and parcel of the longer and larger Black freedom struggle. During that first half of the 20th century, the term civil rights, um, it, it has not yet emerged as the identifying term for the movements that I'm, I'm looking at. Um, it, it does before it, we start to see the term civil rights emerge in the latter part of, of that movement, but it, of that um, first half of the 20th century. But in the main, for the most part of that first half of the 20th century, not only what, not only the, the term social welfare, but in social welfare reform, not only are we seeing the term, but this is the actual uh, work that they're doing. And it grows out of the, the term itself grows out of the actual emphasis that these movement leaders and, and workers were, were focusing their attention on, um, they were also largely social workers um, and workers in social work related fields. Now, when we look at the Urban League, for example, the initial members, the, the, initial, the initial leadership of the Urban League, and now we're not just talking about St. Louis, but the initial leadership of the Urban League, these were largely social workers. When we look at the progressive era, the, the progressive era movements, we see social workers predominantly um, and disproportionately in some cases represented um, in the leadership of those, those movements. And so what these, what these 
social workers and social work types and sociology is playing a big role here. And so you have sociologists and social work scholars as well who are um, emerging in the field of social welfare reform and its connection to the opportunities and the lack of opportunities for Black people at that time. And so what you, what you find is with the Urban League, for example, the Urban League comes into existence in direct response to the needs of African-American migrants. They come in, the Urban League comes into existence in direct response to the Great Migration. And so what are the issues that these African-American working class migrants, largely from the South, what are they interested in? What are their issues. What do they need when they arrive in these urban areas? They need jobs. They need health care. Their children need education. Um, these were social welfare reform issues. And they were understood as social welfare reform issues by the Urban League workers and leaders, um, and also by uh, the League of Women Voters and by other progressive era organizers. It's not that they did not understand these issues as being racial. They were, they were clear on the racial aspects of these issues. And this is why they are concerned about doing studies. This is, this is their first line of, of, of attack here. They're, they're doing studies to see what types of opportunities are available what types of opportunities do Black St. Louisans have? Um, how is segregation having an impact on their access to housing, to health care, uh, to education? They're looking at all of these, all of these things. And so this is how um, they understand their, their work through the prism of social welfare needs and concerns. And as we go throughout the interwar period of World War I to World War II, especially as we get into the 30s, and definitely by the time we get into the 1940s. We're starting to 
see that this social welfare reform paradigm is, is starting to take a back seat because the emerging leadership and activists are beginning to understand their struggles, not as being apart from the previous generation, not as being totally distinct from the social welfare concerns that these activists in the teens and 20s um, and coming into the 30s were fighting for, but they're beginning to understand that there needs to be a more direct engagement with racial discrimination in a particular way that they're not seeing the parent generation of fighting for. Yeah, certainly. I think the interwar period is, is quite notable, as you mentioned, um, because it's occurring before a lot of the major kind of grassroots of the of the more more recent civil rights movement. And when we think of segregation in the context most people focus on, you know, schools and restaurants and stores and public transportation, and they tend to think of it being hap are happening in the South, but segregation existed everywhere uh, throughout the United States. Um, in St. Louis, as you present it in the book, is a, is a city that is not fully segregated. There are some, you know, integrated facilities, but it's not necessarily a fully integrated city as well. Um, talk a little bit about kind of what these reformers are, are dealing with in terms of uh, kind of segregation and discrimination um, in everyday life. So um, the, the phrase um, St. Louis as uh, a northern city with southern exposure. So, you know, I've read in a couple of books uh, recently, um, well, one recently and one um, some years ago, um, had attributed this, this phrase, uh, a northern city with southern exposure to um, the late Margaret Bush Wilson. And uh, I'm working on uh, a biography on her now. And she used the term, but interestingly, she, she didn't coin this term. Um, and I really believe that she learned this term through a discussion that, that she and I had uh, a brief phone conversation uh, where I wanted to talk to her about her role in the League of Women Voters. And I think we had that uh, conversation in, in 1994 if I remember correctly. But I had told her about a woman by the name of Fannie Cook, uh, who was um, uh, a member of the League of Women Voters. Um, and, and she dropped out of, of the League uh, in, in the 30s, um, in, in the late 30s, if I remember correctly. But uh, Fannie Cook, is actually the first person that I read uh, who, who used that term, and I'm sure she didn't even coin it. But suffice it to say that activists during that period um, who were 
engaged in this social welfare uh, reform work that we're discussing, uh, they were very much aware of these sort of uh, competing um, heritages and um, of, of from the South and uh, you know the abolitionist heritage from uh, the Northeast that that converged here through the migratory patterns. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, that um, you know exist here. And so in St. Louis, when you look at, at where it is regionally, it, we shouldn't be surprised uh, about these different influences here. And as you, as you suggest, um, St. Louis uh, was not a city uh, where there were across the board uh, segregated institutions. You had the you had these schools, the public schools that were segregated, uh, yet blacks and whites uh, could use the libraries, the public libraries to together here. Um, our, our public transportation uh, was not segregated um, for the most part, I should, I should say. Um, you had, you definitely had uneven patterns of racial segregation here. Um, and so that was something that uh, these social welfare reformers uh, talked about and they, when they would, when they would talk about these issues, they often would highlight the fact that we had these uneven patterns of racial segregation and they would pose you know the question of 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 why do we we have uh segregation at all when in some areas we're we're not segregated um when we look at the hospitals and the history of of hospitals here in St. Louis. We even see the unevenness um, of these patterns of racial segregation. When you look at how Homer G. Phillips Hospital, for example, came into being, it, it came into being um, not because African-Americans in St. Louis did not have anywhere to receive um, health care services, hospitalization, because in city hospital number one, for example, there was bed space for Black St. Louisans, but it was segregated. And not only was it segregated, and part of the impact of that meant that there were a limited number of beds for Black patients there, but also connected with this, connected with the healthcare delivery for African Americans, 
is also the issue of black medical professionals and where they can practice medicine and where they can't practice medicine. And so intertwined is the plight of black healthcare professionals and black health care recipients. Um, and so uh, again, you have these uneven patterns of um, racial segregation in in the in the in the healthcare realm and in, in education. The schools, the public schools, are segregated. Uh, the constitution of the state constitution of 1865 and 1875 um, had allowed for racially segregated schools. And then um, in 1890, we see that the uh, Supreme Court uh, passes a law in, in 1889 ordering separate schools for uh, African-American children here. Something I'm really interested in with, with the Homer G. Phillips Hospital is, is kind of that history and legacy of that as being not just simply what is, was originally a, a segregated facility, um, but also something that becomes kind of a premier healthcare location for the city's African-American community. Who was Homer G. Phillips? And really, when is this hospital constructed and how long did it exist um, in this healthcare capacity? Homer G. Phillips Hospital um, grew out of uh, the efforts to establish a public hospital for Black St. Louisans. Uh, who were indigent, who could not afford to pay for um, their, their hospitalization. Um, it was not the first public hospital for indigent Black St. Louisans. Uh, City Hospital Number 2 was the first public hospital uh, for, for Black uh, indigent patients. Um, there, there was also uh, Provident, which also went under the name of People's Hospital, which was a private hospital uh, for, for Black St. Louisans as well. But most people could not afford to pay for, for health care. Um, and we certainly, in our time, understand that. Um, so in 1919, when City Hospital Number Two opens up, almost immediately, Black medical professionals uh, begin to decry the uh, inadequacy of that that hospital, and some Black patients uh, join in with that as well, and so almost simultaneously with the uh, establishment of city hospital number two, you have a movement afoot for yet the creation of another uh, black hospital 
or Negro hospital, as they referred to it. And that movement that begins in 1919, it stretches out uh, over a decade, uh, largely for, for two reasons. One, one, one issue that, that came up in this, in this effort was where the hospital would be located. And so there was a faction which included uh, white doctors and uh, the municipal government that made the argument that the new Negro hospital should be an annex to the white public hospital, a physical annex to city hospital number one. And black medical professionals, in particular black doctors, um, said no, that's not a viable option because this issue that we are having of being able to practice medicine in a hospital that has been created for black people, we will have that same issue if we, if we are to be in an annex to the white hospital. And so black medical professionals and black social welfare reform community organizers pushed for a separate hospital, not an annex to the white hospital, but a separate hospital. And they based that argument on the fact that on the, on the idea, rather, that if we're going to be segregated, then the segregation needs to be complete. And this is the argument that African-American women who were organized within the League of Women Voters in the colored committee of the League of Women Voters that was the argument that they put forth. You wanted segregation. So if we're going to have segregation, the segregation needs to be complete. African-American doctors actually go to the Urban League. They go to John T. Clark, who is the executive secretary of the Urban League. And this is in the late 1920s by this point. They go to John Clark and ask him to throw the weight of the Urban League behind their effort to establish a separate Negro hospital for Black people here in St. Louis. And the fact that they went to the Urban League and to John T. Clark speaks to the influence of the Urban League during that time as 
the major organization that people looked to in navigating these issues. It speaks to the influence of, of the uh, Urban League in that regard. And at first, uh, John T. Clark says, no, you know, that's not really the role of the, the Urban League. Now we can offer you support um, from behind the scenes, but we're not um, an advocacy organization of that type. And the doctors kept pressing. And it speaks to John T. Clark's um, kind of complicated understanding in some ways of, of these things that um, he, in spite of what he told the doctors, and he, he let the doctors know that their constitution, that the constitution of the Urban League did not enable them to protest. Uh, but in spite of that, John T. Clark becomes uh, a major force in this movement to create Homer G. Phillips Hospital. Now how Homer G. Phillips, the man, becomes um, involved in this and the hospital is eventually named after him, Homer G. Phillips was an attorney. And this issue of, of the new Negro hospital uh, was important to him. And so he played a major role uh, politically in attempting to lobby for um, governmental support for Homer G. Phillips hospital. And, you know, I've often wondered, and there's no way for us to be able to, to know uh, at this point, but I've often wondered if, if he would not have been um, assassinated um, if the hospital uh, would have been named after him. I think that um, such things have a way of um, when, when someone has been involved in a, a social struggle, um, if they are martyred, oftentimes, uh, you know, institutions are named after them uh, in part because of the, you know, the desire to uh, establish their legacy, to solidify their, their legacy. And so I wonder, uh, had he had he lived, um, had would he have been the namesake of that of that hospital? Because I I don't find in in the research that I did for uh, the dissertation and for the book, um, I don't find uh, any clues to suggest to me that that he that the hospital would have been named after him. I don't know who it would have been named after, but I'm not so sure uh, had he not 
uh, been martyred if the hospital would have been named after him. But nevertheless, he played a major role um, politically. One uh, can definitely argue um, in, 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 in mediating and, and navigating for um, financial support for that hospital. It's very interesting to consider. Um, as we think about kind of the overall project, Certainly, as you've mentioned in this conversation, you know, the Urban League and the League of Women Voters really emerge um, as kind of key uh, factors, key organizations um, in this push to not only kind of promote social welfare reform, but to really improve neighborhood conditions in St. Louis. And you touched on uh, John T. Clark there. You know, tell, tell us a little bit about how he emerges as a major leader, but also maybe some other people that most, you know, listeners may not be familiar with as kind of major reformers of this kind of early to mid 20th century St. Louis uh, social welfare reform movement. So during this era of the Urban League's history, um, you had uh, what was called a position that was called the executive secretary. Um, and uh, the executive secretary of an urban league chapter was really the face of the chapter in, in the community. And that position uh, was reserved uh, during that era um, largely for um, African-American men. And the role of the uh, the the other position um, uh, that is of significance here is the uh, president of the board of directors. So those are two different those are two different positions. And the board of the president of the board of directors position during this era, especially during the uh, early decades of the of the Urban League. This did not begin to change until the 1940s and 50s, um, and largely the 50s, really, 50s and 60s. Um, the role of the president, that, that position was generally reserved for a white man. Um, and so the executive director, as I said, was really the face of the organization in, of the chapter in um, a local community. And the executive secretary of the St. Louis Urban League um, during this era, uh, when we look at not only St. Louis, but Chicago and, and some other major cities as well, you'll find that during that period, the executive secretary um, held that position for quite some time. John T. Clark was in that position. He held that position for 26 years. And he came to St. Louis in, um, for 23 years. He came to St. Louis in 1926, and he was born in Louisville, Kentucky, 
His first urban league position uh, was in New York City. He held, held a couple of different leadership positions there uh, in New York City, um, at one time serving um, in the Harlem uh, chapter. Um, and when he left New York, he became the executive secretary of the Pittsburgh Urban League. And he was the first executive secretary of the Pittsburgh Urban League. And so he fathered that league. And he comes to St. Louis in 1926. Um, and there's some you know, there, there still isn't a clear picture that historians can get of um, these, these years in Pittsburgh as it relates to exactly uh, why he was driven out of the, the um, Pittsburgh League. But we do know that it, the context surrounding it has to do with his uh, aggressive leadership on the question of labor. And so when he comes to, to St. Louis, uh, he's very much interested in Black labor concerns and labor organizing concerns. And so when John Clark comes to the St. Louis Urban League in 1926, as one might imagine that an, uh, an exec would do, um, he's looking at the social terrain, the political terrain of St. Louis and attempting to get a, a feel, feel for it. And he is coming into leadership um, not only in this organization but the urban league is part and parcel of uh, the whole social welfare reform terrain here in St. Louis and so he's a member of a, a larger progressive uh, era generation um, and We've already talked about the League of Women Voters uh, some, but, and, and I mentioned Fannie Cook, but then there's Edna Gilhorn uh, in the League of Women Voters, uh, who was a major force in determining that Black women would be invited to join the League of Women Voters chapter in its inception when it was coming into being in 1919 and 1920. And not only inviting them into the organization, but she cast the deciding vote that an African-American woman would be on the board of the League of Women Voters. Um, and so you have individuals 
like Edna Gilhorn and and John T. Clark, um, when we go uh, a little later in the period, you, you know, you have Attorney David Grant. Um, I mean, you 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 have a number of black and white people who are in leadership who are really making an impact in shaping the nature of social welfare reform and civil rights um, civil rights movement issues and the way the and the way the and the way the strategies the, the civil rights the social welfare reform and civil rights strategies are are developing in in St. Louis. Tell us about your current research project. So my current research project um, actually grew out of um, groping toward democracy. Um, in that book I mentioned uh, Margaret Bush Wilson. I don't really talk about her a lot. Um, there are just a couple of mentions of, of her and, and her mother. She was, all, she was named after her, her mother, actually. And Margaret Bush Wilson was born in 1919 and she died um, in 2009 at the age of, of 90. And she was a major figure uh, in the civil rights struggles of African Americans, not only in this city, but in this, this nation. Uh, she was an attorney and she grew up uh, in St. Louis and, and, and lived in the city of St. Louis uh, until she passed in, in 2000. Nine um, in 1975, she becomes the first African American woman to serve as the chairman of the National NAACP Board of Directors, and uh, it was at that point when she becomes national chair of the NAACP board that. Uh, many people uh, learned the name Margaret Bush Wilson. Um, and uh, I was not surprised to, as I began doing the research on her, I was not surprised to uh, learn, begin to learn about um, her work with the NAACP, although that's, you know, interesting in and of itself, uh, beyond interesting. Um, but I've come to um, understand her and 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 be able to describe uh, not only her her leadership in the NAACP and her activism in the NAACP but to look at um, her life as, as a whole. And I uh, feel very fortunate that 
she was so uh, aware of herself and her importance in in the history that she was was making and so she kept everything um, um, her papers or at Washington University and um, there are um, approximately 800 boxes of material there um, from various aspects of of her her life and so one of the things that historians um, and biographers of women and in particular women of color african-american women uh, especially sometimes we a lot of times we have to lament the fact that we don't have a lot of primary sources um, from which to reconstruct uh, the lives and aspects of the lives of our our subjects uh, and that's definitely not the case with Margaret Bush Wilson and so I have a, a unique opportunity a daunting opportunity if you will to really um, be able to reflect on not only her public uh, life but also her private life um, and how those intersect. Um, so I have an opportunity to look at um, the whole person um, in, in a sense. So that's, you know, that's what I'm working on now. Um, she is, um, Margaret Bush Wilson in a very important way speaks to who we are as a nation. Um, I look at her as a philosophical pragmatist because she indeed was. And philosophers will tell us that uh, philosophy, the philosophy of pragmatism is uh, uniquely American. It is the only uniquely American uh, philosophy that we can point to. And what Margaret Bush Wilson's pragmatism um, has to teach us, not only about the 20th century, which her life uh, nearly spans, um, she has a lot to teach us about today and where we are. Because um, we are very much aware that our um, civic discourse, our political discourse um, has become so polarized. You're either for me or you are against me. And this is not uh, the heart of who we are as a nation. When we go back to our founding, this is not who we are as, as a nation. And so Margaret Bush Wilson has a lot to teach us about uh, the promise of America. And that's my working title right now, Margaret Bush Wilson and the Promise of America, a Pragmatic Civil Rights Vision. Well, we look forward to, uh, to seeing that in the future. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, it's been my pleasure.
I really thank you for inviting me to have this discussion. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.